Today's reading is Luke 1, verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And in the sixth month, for her who was said to be barren, for no nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated. Thank you for that wonderful reading. I think it's so wonderful to see um, younger people reading wor the word to us because it, it's a reminder, at least to me, that this is a faith that we have been given and that we are also giving um, continually over time and that we can sit under the words of those who are, are younger and because it's what God is doing through Jesus in all of us, including our children. So always a gift. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll get into this morning's um, sermon. God, you are... You are the one who is with us. You are the one who speaks to us. You are the comforter. You are the peacemaker. Give us comfort. Give us peace. Help us to listen, to hear you as you draw near to us. Help us to take the risk in the steps of faith to draw near to you. Remind us of your love of your provision, of your deliverance, of your redemption, of your reconciliation. And remind us not simply in the way that we think about things, but in the way that our lives are lived with one another in the world before others so that our lives, as you are shaping us and working within us to transform us, bear witness to the type of God that you are, the God who has come to us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're in the, the Apostles' Creed this morning, and here's what we're going to talk about. So if you see it's up here, we're just going to take off a little bit of the Creed, and we're going to talk about, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Just a little bit um, of it. And... So here we go, 30 minutes. That's going to be good. Um, so in prepping for this, it was constantly a reminder of, oh, wow, this, there is just so much here. How do you do this? And how do you do it in a way that 
You're not just talking about everything and therefore nothing. Uh, and, um, and the reason why um, we're, we're attempting to, to do all of this in right now, one is because uh, we are on an ongoing conversation together as a church in which we're talking about the Apostles' Creed, not just in sermons, but also in life groups. And so we're trying to continue the dialogue and the discussion, not just here in Sunday mornings, but with one another. Um, and so this is what we're going to be discussing um, this week in our life groups, are these key things about who Jesus is. So we're moving from the first article of the Creed, which is talking about God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, into the second article, which is really a focus on Jesus. Now, even if you were to look at the Creed, you would notice immediately that the Creed is most concerned with Jesus, right? Jesus and what's taking place in Jesus is really what's most significant or important. This is the centerpiece of the Creed. It's what everything is leading towards and it's what everything will move from, what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to talk about these different pieces and these elements of who Jesus is in light of the creed and what it's wanting to say. Now, if you've been here, you've heard me say that the creed in some ways works as a, as a way of bringing us into the landscape of faith. It shows us like a map the things that we need to be paying attention to, the different language that we use, um, the different landmarks and the pieces that help orient us to the story. But it's also a lens. It's a lens that helps us read scripture well. What are the things we need to, be, need to be reading? And what are the things we need to be understanding? But it also works like a light. It illuminates different things about the story, about God. And it's a tapestry in, in holding things together, holding the Father, Son, and Spirit together, holding the ancient story of faith as God was doing in Israel to our present story of faith in the church and what it's like to work it out in the present, 2020, Long Beach, our specific context. So the creed is, is, is a tapestry in holding all of these pieces together. And that what the creed does, as I suggested, is that it pulls us into life with God. That what it wants to do, and as we say we believe, we are, we are putting ourselves in the story, confessing belief in the God who is good, who is maker, who is almighty, the God whom we can trust, we are being pulled into life with God. But we're also reminded by the creed that our faith has a story. That we are not simply making it up as we go, but rather we are coming from something. Something beautiful, something profound, something that God is continuing to do. But it's also an opportunity to develop and cultivate a posture of discovery. What might it look like to discover who God is afresh. And so whenever we talk about things like God or we're going to talk about Jesus and we're going to talk about Mary, there's always a temptation to assume we already know everything. If you're like me, that's my temptation. Oh, we've heard this scripture read, of course. I know Luke 1. I know what happens with the angel and with Mary. But what if God wants in his grace and his mercy to continue to give us new things through his word? Not because the words themselves are new, but because God is living and active and continues to speak faithfully through the word he has given to us. So what might God have for us this morning? 
So we're going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to talk about these different elements, this component of the creed. And, and I, want to, I want to ask the question, or at least I want to explore the question of what this part of the creed shows us. And so I think it shows us more than three things, but because we have a limited time, these are the three things that I'm going to talk about. So this part of the creed shows us that the story of Israel is continued and fulfilled. It's also, shows, it's also showing us that the character of God is revealed in Jesus. And then it shows us the grace and mercy of our participation in that story. So these are the three big ideas, the three big things that we're going to talk about this morning in this, in this part of the creed. Because as I have said before, the creed is a baptismal creed. The ancient church used it as a teaching tool, but also as a way to bring new converts into the faith, that they would teach these new converts who wanted to identify with Jesus what it meant to be a part of the Christian story. So they would teach through these things, and then they would become questions. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? They would say yes, then they would be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their life would be taken up um, with the story. And so really the creed is a reminder of what is true about us in our baptism, of what God has made true of us in Jesus, in our life being baptized into the story of Jesus. So first, how is this a continuation and a fulfillment of Israel's story? Well, there are three words, three titles that are really given to Jesus, and I want to talk about those three titles, Christ, Son, and Lord. Now, these are titles that carry on from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Now, Jesus Christ, now Christ is not Jesus' last name, and I'm not saying that as a joke, actually, even though it's funny, but because we hear Jesus Christ together all the time, it's easy for people who are even new to, to the faith to not really understand that what is being said about Jesus is that he's been given a title. Jesus Christ, Christ, is a title. And it's a title that connects to Old Testament of this idea of Messiah. Christ, the title of Messiah, is the title that God had given to him, or it means anointed, so it's this title that God gave to Jesus in order to fulfill his function in his place in the story. So in the creed, what it's saying by say we believe in Jesus Christ is to suggest that we are believing in Jesus, the Messiah, as the one whom God has anointed to fulfill his purposes, the purposes that he actually gave to Israel. Jesus also, the name, is significant because Jesus comes from the word Yeshua, which is connected to the Hebrew word of Joshua, which means deliverer. So all of a sudden, what we're believing in is a person who is to be the deliverer of God's people and who, have, who has been anointed by God to fulfill what it is God has given him to do, what it is God has given the people of Israel to do. So there's this thread being connected immediately in the person of Jesus. Now, keep in mind, again, this is a baptismal creed, so people are being baptized into the Christian faith. And this is so significant that they know and realize that this is a story that has already been going on. They are jumping into the middle of the story. In fact, like the very fulfillment and climax of the story. 
This is not something completely and entirely different than what God was up to in the Old Testament. This is a continuation and a fulfillment of that. And we see this, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed. This idea of rescue, of deliverance. But now we talk about God's Son. Now this isn't necessarily a biological title, though we see in Luke 1, right, that, that the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit, that this, this child was conceived and then born, which we're going to get to, and some of you are like, this is the place. I just don't know how that works. Um, and if I, I'm not going to, I don't know how it works. I'm not going to tell you how it works. Um, but, because that's not how it worked with, with anybody that I know of. Um, it, but what we're going to talk about is how this actually is connected to and significant in the story that God is telling and how it's a continuation of the story that God began with Israel and continues even with us today. So God's son. So to affirm that, God, that Jesus is God's son is to affirm that, that Jesus has a special relationship to the Father, but it's also, again, connected to Old Testament realities. Israel was referred to as God's son. In Hosea chapter 11, when God was speaking about Israel, it said, out of Egypt, I call my son. Referring to the Exodus, of course, and the people of Israel being rescued. But if you remember, if that phrase rings a bell, it's because it's also in Matthew. When Jesus and his parents flee because of what Herod is going to do, the writer connects that to this passage of out of Egypt I call my son. So Jesus, though a new thing that God is up to, is connected to the old thing or the continuing thing that God is still doing. That Jesus is the embodiment, the fulfillment of what Israel was called to be. Now, who was Israel called to be? Well, it was through Israel, as we look in Genesis 12, that God made a covenant with Abraham. He promised to give him descendants after descendants, and they were going to be a blessing to the world, that it was through them that God was going to bless them so that they might be a blessing. They had a vocation. They had something to do. And so Jesus Christ, the anointed one, is also God's son with the same vocation through which God is going to fulfill his purposes. Do you see the threads? Now, if you were to turn to your Bibles in Psalm 2 also, go to Psalm chapter 2. I'll tell you the page number in a second. Unless you beat me, you can just yell it out. I win, 448. Uh, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the, de the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
So this sense of God's, of Jesus being God's son is also the sense of, of kingship, of placement, of power, of God being the ruler over all things. So he was anointed as the Messiah to be the deliverer and the rescuer, to be the one through whom all of God's desires and purposes were going to be accomplished, but he's also God's son as king, and there's a power element to it. It's not just a relational component, but there's, it invokes power. It invokes a sense of, of, of this person, of Jesus being raised up, of being glorified. It also speaks of Jesus as our Lord. So we have Christ, we have Son, and we have our Lord. Now, of course, we know that there is no God other than the God of Israel, of the one who is revealed in Jesus. But there's this connecting point, again, with the language of Lord. The language of, of this one God who rescued Israel from Egypt, and he is to be their Lord over all. Think of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God. So Jesus Christ is not only the Messiah, he's not only the son in terms of king, but he is the one who rules over all things. This might help us think of Philippians 2, right? When we think of, of and I, I think I referenced it last week, but this sense in which God, or which in which Jesus humbles himself to the point of death, but is raised again by God, and God lifts him up raises him up to be glorified as Lord over all. So there's a sense of, of being anointed by God to fulfill purposes of the son like a king, but then also of a Lord over all things. So the story of Israel and what the creed is pointing us to is continued and fulfilled in Jesus. But it also reveals and shows us who God is. Jesus shows us who God is. One scholar puts it this way, Roger Olson, Jesus is the perfect revelation of the character of God. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. God gave Jesus to us so that we might know him, know what he is like so that we might be pulled into his life to experience the life that he offers. It is truly all about Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer. Because this is what it's about, and this is what the story is pointing to. So if we were to look at Jesus to see what God is like, what would we see? And this is why it's so important, and I encourage you and implore you, Read the Gospels. Because you need to know what Jesus is like. You need to know what he says, what he does. Because then you will know what God is like. And trust me, that is such good news to know that Jesus reveals God. So if we were to take these names again, Christ, Son, and Lord, and we were to think about the character of God, we see that God is revealing himself to be a rescuer, and a deliverer. We see in Jesus 
that God rescues and delivers. But that is always who God is and what he's doing, rescuing us and delivering us. Listen to these words in Luke 4. And now listen to the word even anointed in reference to what we've been talking about. So Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you hear that? What is God like? God is a rescuer and deliverer, giving sight to the blind. The lame might walk, lifting up those who are poor and oppressed, that there is good news for them. That is the character of God as revealed in Jesus. Also, son, what does it mean? How does this reveal who God is and what he's like? Now, this reveals that, that God is one who is interested in relationship. It is, it is revealing that God is one who is not abstract, not far off, but is near to us in the person of Jesus. And again, as we see Jesus, we see God. Listen to the words of John 5. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. So to see Jesus is to see God. But to affirm, as we do in the creed, that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, we're also affirming mysteriously that Jesus and God are one. That they are one God. And the Holy Spirit shows up, which is also another part of that blessed, mysterious trinity. How do we explain this? People have been trying for years. So is it God working in three different ways and three different functions? Is it really one God, but also sometimes he, he kind of brushes off some of the powerful, powerful elements to be the Son? No, those are all heresies. To affirm that God is one and that Father, Son, and Spirit are one God is to affirm that they are all one and the same, somehow at work together and in the same. And that's crazy and wild and something that the creed pushes us to believe and affirm and to wrestle with and to think about. But it's this triune life of God in relationship that we are pulled up in through the Son and by the Son and that we know what this is like because of Jesus. But also, what does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and what does that reveal about God? It reveals that God is still reigning. God is still in control. God is still king. And that under his rule and reign, that is good and great news. Because that means there is justice. That means that things are being made right. That means there is wholeness and shalom and goodness. It means that God will fulfill his purposes now and forever. Okay, so where does the virgin birth come into play here? 
why is this something we affirm? Is this just a theological test to make sure that you're all in? And if you find this hard to believe and you don't, you kind of, you just kind of mumble past this because you don't want anybody to know. Because if they knew, you'd feel like you'd be kicked out of the faith in some ways. Is that why this is here? I don't think this is some sort of theological test. I don't think that this is actually a, a, a way by which we should be um, looking at people, watching their words move, or if they don't, we just say, well, obviously, they're not part of the story. Um, obviously, they're not my brothers and sisters. No, the virgin birth and that it's here is really profound and really beautiful. And by the way, I don't have a problem with the virgin birth. Um, I actually, I feel like I can say this personally with confidence. Um, and because I feel like God can do what God can do. And I affirm later that there's a resurrection. So, I mean, I feel like there's just so many things about it that, that make sense to me. But if it's hard for you, I just want you to know that I'm not, I don't think you're some theological outcast that you need to be um, excused from the faith. But I want to talk about why I think it's here and why I think it's actually beautiful that it's here. One, I think it connects to the story of Israel because for some reason, God has always chosen to do things through women who cannot have children. In the story of Israel, time and time again, it looked like the future was foreclosed because a woman was barren, whether that be Sarah, whether that be Hannah, whether that be even in the New Testament, Elizabeth, that it seems as if God's purposes are now and forever done and complete. But yet, God makes new things possible. And so in the virgin birth, we also have a continuation of that story of God again making a way where it seemed like there would be no way. In the person of Mary, who had not been with a man and yet is, going, is conceiving of a child. So there's a continuation of the story of Israel there. But it's also a continuation in terms of God's character, which God keeps the story moving. God is the one responsible for keeping the story moving. I am not ultimately responsible. As much as I tell myself, Daniel, if you weren't here, the world, they wouldn't know what to do. You are not ultimately responsible God is responsible for keeping the story moving. Even when it seemed like there was no way, God makes a way. But there's also something beautiful about Mary showing up in the creed in which we affirm, and it's this. is that, yes, there's a, there's a fulfillment of Israel's story, and yes, it reveals God's character, but it also shows something to us and reveals something to us about the grace and mystery of human participation. That it is God who keeps the story moving, but somehow, for some reason, he chooses history and people and lives through which to keep that story going. And Mary, 
conceiving of a child by the Holy Spirit speaks to that reality. This whole section on the creed, you'll notice that there are three names who are named, Jesus, Mary, and Pontius Pilate. Now, why do those names show up? One of the reasons they show up is because it reveals that this is a historical reality. We just talked about God potentially in the abstract, and you can think whatever you'd like to think about those things. But then we get to history. We get to people. We get to names. Things that are potentially verified. And why is that? Because our faith doesn't just live up in the sky or in abstract ideas and thoughts, but like I said last week, it's lived out in human experience and realities and choices. And so to, to see these names all of a sudden show up in the creed and that we are believing in Jesus Christ in connection with these names is to say that, that this is a part of the creed where history and God's work are coming together. In fact, it's in the person of Jesus that we say that most fully, right? That somehow it is God and humanity in the person of Jesus that are so intimately woven together. That it's actually taken place in the world. That is one thing that Christianity affirms. That there is a person named Jesus who lived a life who was also God, who died and was resurrected. This is a claim that Christians make, that God did something in history. And so to, to say that, that we believe in, in the Holy Spirit somehow working with Mary to conceive of a son is to say that we are believing in God's work and in human participation coming together. That God has decided that is the way it will be. And sometimes I think, God, there are a lot better ways than working with me or these other people I know. I won't name names, but... (laughs) But you can put yourself there. God, there's got to be other ways. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, mercy, works with people and their lives. It includes us in the story. Now, I want to quote Rowan Williams, whom I quoted last week, who's been a massive help to me with the creed. He has a book called Tokens of Trust, which I'll just refer you to if you're interested, which I think is such a beautiful and small book, not quite as small as our life group book, but almost. Um, and it's, it's so beautiful in, his, in the ways that he brings these things into our lived experience. And he says this, When the creed says that these two ways of looking at Jesus' birth through the Spirit and through Mary both need to be affirmed, it says that we can't think of the life of Jesus as just the result of what human history throws up, just another episode in the world. Yet, it is also human history that opens the way. Jesus comes into being on earth because God breathes into the world his breath which is what spirit, of course, means, as he breathed into the first human being in the creation story of Genesis. But this doesn't happen without the human event of Mary saying yes. So I want to stop right there. So when we affirm this part of the creed, in all of its complexity and confusion, wondering how does this work, we're actually affirming that it is God's action in human history and human participation that works together, and it's through that that God fulfills his purposes. 
And so when the Spirit of God breathes life into the person of Mary in order that the Son, the Jesus, might be born, it is an affirmation that it is not only God who is the one doing the breathing, but it is Mary who is being willing and receptive and open to the ways of God. That God chooses to move and to work, and it is, and it is Mary's yes, and openness to that work and to that movement, that God is then able to work out his purposes. Now, if you want, you can turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1. 855. So after all of the, what the angel says about Jesus and about what's going to happen to her, Mary says at the end, behold, this is on 856, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary, in the creed, becomes an example to us of how we respond to the God who has revealed himself to, in Jesus as Christ, Son, and Lord. Mary's willingness and openness to be the conduit through which God's life would come into the world is an example to us of what it means for us to be open and willing for God's purposes and life to go into the world. Isn't that beautiful that Mary becomes an example? So you can ask all day all the questions about biology and the confusing theology about why this works, but I think together we could actually affirm the fact that God's ways works themselves out through history and that it's our willingness and openness that God uses to do and accomplish his work. So that means that you and I, all day, every day, all the time, have an opportunity to say yes to God and to be open to what he will do with our lives. And as we will see next week in Pontius Pilate, we also have the ability to say no. But in Mary who says yes to God becomes our example of what it means to say yes to the one who has revealed himself as Christ, Son, and Lord. Yes to your deliverance and your redemption. Yes to your kingship and to your reign. Yes to your lordship of being over all things. Because these realities that God has made possible in Jesus demand a response from us. We are included in the story. We are included not simply as sons and daughters. So when we say that Jesus Christ, God's only son, that we identify with Jesus and are also adopted into God's family. But we are also naming our needed response, which is, yes, I am your servant. I am open to your ways, to what you might have for me, to what you want to do in the world. And so I guess here's a question for me and for you. Is in what ways do you need to say yes to God? In what ways do you need to be open to God's work in your life, through your life for others? 
What does it mean for you to be receptive to the breath of the Spirit of God, like the breath in the creation story in Genesis, hovering over the waters, bringing new life? What might it mean for you to be yes to that breath in order to bring new life? God to bring new life in you, God to bring new life through you. What is God calling you, asking you to say yes to? And what I love is that Mary is able to say yes because she knows this God who has revealed himself in the story over time to be this deliverer, to be this wonderful, good, just king, and to be the Lord who reigns over all. One last quote. God has mysteriously made a world in which what human beings do can help or hinder what he achieves at any point in the world's history. God has mysteriously made a world in which what human beings do can help or hinder what he achieves at any point in the world's history. If you think that your life is just random and that you can simply do whatever you want or not do anything at all because you either don't matter or you matter too much, this is a corrective that, like Mary says, no, what we do or don't do in our cooperation with God has meaning. Your daily lives, your parenting, your work, your friendships, your marriages, your parental relationships, they have meaning. What does it look like for you to say yes in those different places where God has put you? To say yes to his will, to his work, to his ways. What does it look like for Grace Long Beach to say yes to God? What might he do in breathing new life into us and through us as individuals, but also as a church, as this people who say, I believe. I believe in this type of God who's revealed himself in this person, Jesus, and has shown himself to be this ways, these ways. That, that is what we're believing together. In this God who is faithful, who is good, who wants to be near us, this God who wants to deliver us and rescue us, this God who wants to be king over our lives, and this God who rules and reigns over all. If you're anxious about what's going on in the world, if you're nervous about this year and what's going to take place later on in November or constantly because of all the violence, if that is something that produces anxiety, if that is something that keeps you up at night, if that is something that causes you to interact with other people in a less than generous and dignifying way, then what has happened is that you have forgotten that God rules and reigns, that God is the one who is Christ, is the deliverer. There is no human person who can deliver us. That God is king. All the kings in this world will bow down to him whom God has raised. That Lord, overall, that his purposes in cooperation or in participation with us will be fulfilled. That is the God that we are affirming. That is the God who is in control. That is the God that together we are called to bear witness to. And somehow, in some crazy, gracious, mysterious way, my actions and your actions help that work or hinder that work. And so what does it look like for us to say yes to God? 
Thanks be to the one who has revealed himself in Jesus as Christ, Son, and Lord. Thanks for listening to the Grace Long Beach podcast. For more information about our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org.